Good morning and welcome. How many of you know what this thing is up here? This picture. There we go. Seen one of these before? How many of you called it a seesaw growing up? How many of you called it a teeter-totter? Apparently in Canada it's called a seesaw because I googled teeter-totter and you don't want to know what I found. But it's called a seesaw. I googled it. And it's a seesaw. And here's how this works. You put one person on one side, right? And then you have to have somebody on the other side that weighs about the same amount. And if the person doesn't weigh as much on one side as on the other side, you got a problem, right? Or if the person on the other side weighs way too much, we got an even bigger problem, don't we? So who was the worst kid to play seesaw with on the playground growing up? Everybody knows it was the fat kid. Okay, so I don't have anything against fat kids. I was the fat kid sometimes. I had too much cake at times. I've had too much cake lately. That's fine. But I'm not just talking about the fat kid. I'm talking about the big kid, like the real big, because, you know, you can never get the seesaw to move, right? Like that person is just, their rear end is in the ground, and the thing is never going to move, and it's never going to lift up. So I want to show you who I think the worst person would be to play seesaw with these days, and he's up here on the screen. How many of you recognize this guy right here? Anybody recognize this guy? Raise your hand if you recognize that guy. Okay, how many of you recognize him from strongman competitions, which I recognize him from strongman competitions? How many of you recognize him from a television program? Because you're a sinner, that's why. You're a sinner because you watch Game of Thrones. Uh, this guy's name is The Mountain, and he's about seven foot tall and weighs over 400 pounds. I wanted you to get a picture of how big he is. This person here that he's standing next to is a professional athlete, professional baseball player. That's how big he is. Next picture here, he's standing next to a normal-sized woman. That's how big he is. Next picture, uh, he's standing next to the greatest bodybuilder of all time, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's how big he is, okay? And just so that you're not totally intimidated and frightened this morning, I actually included this picture here too because he looks a lot less intimidating when he's holding a Pomeranian. So let's say we take this man, the mountain, and I'm not going to pronounce his real name because it's Icelandic and it's got letters I don't even know about. Let's say we put him on the other side of the seesaw, all right? Is that not the worst guy to play seesaw with? You just sit there all darn day, don't you? So I was thinking about this, especially as it relates to the passage that we're studying this morning, and I'll get there. Don't panic here. You're going, what in the world? Where is this going? Uh, because in a lot of ways, the human race is like the mountain on a seesaw. We carry around heavy weights, don't we? We carry around burdens. We talk about being heavy-hearted. I know that so many uh, in Canada, across Canada and in this room, are heavy-hearted because of what happened in Saskatchewan to that junior hockey team just a couple days ago. 15 now children are gone. 15 parents, sets of parents missing their kids. We're heavy-hearted. We carry around maybe the burden of caring for an aging spouse. Some of us feel that we're buried under a mountain of, de of debt. We carry around the burden and the heaviness of mental illness. We still feel heavy because of someone we lost that was close to us. It's the personal heaviness and the personal weight. And it's all the weight and the brokenness and the sin that marks humanity. And we feel like we will never get our rear end off the ground. Who could ever lift us out 
of this position we're in, as Paul would say, who can save us from this body of sin? We feel at times that there is no counterweight heavy enough to lift us up. In the Old Testament, there's this word chabod. It's up here on the screen. It's often translated glory. Here it is in the original Hebrew characters. And when Isaiah talks about God's glory filling the temple, it's this word. When Moses says to God, show me your glory, it's this word. When God talks about his Shekinah glory dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple, it's this word, glory. But if we were to translate it literally, just word for word, from Hebrew into English, this word is literally translated weight. The weight of God the significance of God, the importance of God, the immensity of God. I love this definition of glory. It's up here on the screen. One Bible scholar says that glory, God's glory, is the singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. The singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. So when we talk about the glory of God, Kabod in the Old Testament and doxa in the New Testament, what we're talking about is all that we see God doing and have, and all that we, he, he has done, all of who he is. Romans 1 says we see God's glory his weight in creation. I'm learning so much from my daughter's books about animals. She's three and a half, and she's learning just as much as I'm learning. I didn't know that worms had to use water to breathe. I didn't, like, I didn't know this stuff, but now I do, and now I know things about the cosmos that I didn't know before. And a guy named David Bentley Hart, you know, I'm reading a book of his right now, he actually says that God didn't just create that stuff and breathe it into being, although he did, but he, to use the language of the scripture, is the thing in which all things live and move and have their being. Could you imagine how weighty he must be? He's created us in his image to show off his glory, his weight, the singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. I think this is why John begins his biography of the life of Jesus this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this is Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning. John goes on, he says, and we have seen his glory. The, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Say this word with me. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What he's saying is all of that weight of God, all that we see God doing, all that we have seen God do, his splendor, his majesty, his omniscience, omnipresence, his omnibenevolence, all of who he is, is collected together in Christ and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, here's what we're talking about this morning. The weight of glory has come down so that we might be lifted up. No matter how heavy that weight might feel on the other end of the seesaw. <laughs> whether it's the weight of debt, whether it's the weight of sickness, whether it's the weight of a broken marriage or relationship, whether it's the weight of mental illness, whether it's the weight of a marriage longed for that never was, whether it's the weight of stress and anxiety, the weight of the glory of God far surpasses any weight you could be carrying today. And that weight 
has come down in Christ so that we might be lifted up. And that's John chapter 11. That's where we're going to get to this morning. You can open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on with a friend. You can grab a Bible in the seat back in front of you. As always, the scripture is going to be up here on the screen as we talk about it. And I know that since last week was Resurrection Sunday, had a lot of new folks in the place, and you're maybe joining us for the first time, I want to catch you up with a little bit of a review of what we've talked about so far in the first 10 chapters of John, just so you kind of know what's going on. John was a disciple of Jesus, began to follow Jesus in his teen years, about 14, 15 years old. After Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, many of his disciples, in fact, uh, uh, all of them other than Judas, who took his own life, went to their own deaths because they maintained the reality and the veracity, the historicity of the resurrection. They affirmed the resurrection, so they were beheaded or crucified or drawn and quartered or all kinds of different things. John was the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith. John was isolated in exile on an island called Patmos and had to live out the remainder of his life in isolation from everyone. Some of you extroverts in the room are going, I think I'd rather be beheaded than to live alone for the rest of my life, but that's a different story. And by the time John hit his 90s, he thought it would be a good idea to sit down and write a biography of the life of Jesus and write down the things that he saw and the glory that he beheld and the weight of God that he touched with his own hands, as he would say in John chapter 1. But he doesn't write everything down. In fact, John says this, I love it in John 21, he says, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I love this. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If I wrote everything down about Jesus, the world is not big enough. If all the world were a library. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. And John says, okay, so I'm not going to write everything down, but I'm going to write some things down. And the stuff that I'm going to write down are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. See, this word believe means active trust. John wants us to put our active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and consequently receive life in his name. So what he begins to do is record some signs, some things that Jesus did in in chapters 1 through through 11, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And he records seven of them. They're the seven miracles in the book of John. We've talked about a number of them already. Jesus turned water into wine. That's W to W there, okay, it's abbreviated. He healed the official son, healed the paralytic, uh, fed 5,000 people, probably closer to 12,000 because they only counted men back then. He walked on water, I just call that the water walk. He healed a blind man, and we'll get to the seventh miracle today in John chapter 11. The second thing that John records is some I am statements. It's less about what Jesus did and who Jesus was, uh, maybe more accurately, who Jesus is. Seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's using metaphor to help us understand spiritual things and his identity. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. We'll get to the fifth of those I am statements today in John chapter 11. But again, John chapter 11 represents a transition in the scripture. So pay really close attention here. John chapter 1, say John chapter 1 is over here, is the prologue. It's kind of the intro. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's the introduction. John chapters 2 through 11 represent the book of the signs. Uh, Here's the things Jesus did. John chapter 12 is a transition. 
And then John chapters 13 through 20 is the book of the Passion, the last week of Jesus' life, crucifixion and resurrection. And John chapter 21, which is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, is the epilogue. So here we are, back over here, John chapters 2 through 11, and we're in John chapter 11 today. It's the conclusion of the book of signs. John is wrapping it up, and now we're going to transition into Passion Week. The second thing is, John chapter 11 is the longest narrative of a miracle in any book of the New Testament. Let me say that one more time. John chapter 11 is the longest narrative of a miracle. It takes John a very long time to tell this story of Jesus, spoiler alert, raising Lazarus from the dead. And you may have heard it said that the devil is in the details. I would say in this particular case that God is in the details. So we need to pay really close attention to the details that John shares with us in order to understand John chapter 11. Consequently, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through John chapter 11. It's long, and there is a lot of good stuff in there. And today, we're just focusing on this one principle, that the weight of the glory of God has come down, that we might be lifted up. But let's start with the narrative itself, shall we? Look up here on the screen. John chapter 11, verse 1, reads this way. It says, a certain man was ill. That certain man was Lazarus, that's the Greek uh, form of the name Eleazar in the Hebrew, of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Just a side note, if you were two sisters, had a brother that you loved very much, and he got sick, and you knew Jesus personally, you'd send for Jesus too, wouldn't you? All right, so they sent for Jesus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the, say this word with me, Glory, that's our key word today, of God, so that the Son of Man may be, say that word with me, glorified. We should assign weight. The weight of God is going to be revealed through it. That's the sickness. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. That's all we're going to cover today. All right. So let's get our bearings a little bit. John tells us that a certain man was ill. Next slide. And his name was Lazarus of Bethany. So let's get to know the place that Jesus is in and the place that Mary and Martha are in. A little map is up here on the screen. This is first century Palestine area. Jericho and Jerusalem obviously still there. And Mary and Martha lived in a little village called Bethany in Judea. Bethany, uh, Judea is the province and Bethany is the city. It was about two miles from Jerusalem, 45-minute walk, depending on how fast of a walker you are. Bethany beyond the Jordan was over here on the northeast side of the Jordan River in a province called Perea. So before Jesus was summoned by Mary and Martha, he was actually hanging out here in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Does this, does this city, Bethany beyond the Jordan, sound familiar to anybody from John chapter 1? 
This is where John the Baptist did his ministry, where he began baptizing people near the, or in the Jordan River. He did it around here in Perea at Bethany beyond the Jordan. John the Baptist and John the Apostle, who's our author of this biography of the life of Jesus, are not the same person. This city, Bethany, and that city, Bethany, are not the same city. I don't know why they just didn't come up with different names or come up with different names of cities or something like that. They made it difficult on us, but just so you understand, John the Baptist and John, not the same person. Bethany and Bethany, not the same person. So what happens is Mary and Martha in Bethany with their sick brother Lazarus send for Jesus. Jesus delays two days at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Then he makes the journey back to Bethany to visit Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. This is where we are geographically. This is the place this miracle happened. Now let's get to know the people, and this is absolutely critical. There are three people in this text that we've already mentioned, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and we need to know them and know them well in order to understand the weight of the glory of God. So let's just chip away at them one at a time. The three of these folks are siblings, and Martha is a very interesting human being. Uh, how many of you have read the story of Martha and Mary and Lazarus and okay, heard about that? Okay, so I, I, this is a long chunk of scripture. I understand that. We're going to do this twice this morning. So I need you to dial your brain in as we read this. I'll try to make it interesting as we go and reveal my inner monologue. Hopefully say something inappropriate so you'll laugh a little bit and we'll make the scripture more exciting. All right, so let's get to know Martha a little bit as we read. Look up here on the screen. Now, now, as they went on their way, this is Luke writing, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha, this is the Martha that sent for Jesus when Lazarus was ill, this is before that happened, welcomed Jesus into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. All right, cool. These are, these are characters. These are people in our story who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. We find out two things about Martha right here. First, she was distracted with much serving. Do you know anybody who just won't sit down when you go over to their house? Yeah, some of you are pointing at, their, at your spouse. I get that. That's fine. The chair of our elder board, John Havercroft, I yes, I did say your first and last name. Anytime I've been at his cottage, dude won't sit down. He gets up, starts preparing a meal, serves the meal, cleans up after the meal, and starts preparing for the next meal. You want a tea? You want a coffee? What do you need? This is Martha. John, you're a Martha. I love you. You know that. My... Uh, my grandmother, Amy's, Amy's, uh, grand, uh, Amy's grandmother, is this way, just all the time, serving all the time. So this is Martha. She's busy. This is a good thing. This is a helpful thing. We like people like this. They bring us cake. We love that. That's great. That's awesome. But Martha's always serving all the time. But, but, but listen to this transli- transition that happens. She says, do you not care that my sister has left me to what? Serve alone. Aha, a little bit of entitlement there, isn't there? A little bit of entitlement. Then she tries to leverage Jesus' lordship, right? Tell her to help me. Jesus is not fooled. Lord answered, Martha, Martha. It's so tender, right? When you, when you repeat a name in scripture, it's very tender. Martha, Martha. Listen, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Listen to the tenderness of Christ here. But one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we get to know Martha a little bit. We get to know that Martha is loved by Jesus in her sin, in her busyness, in her entitlement. 
in her rule following. Mary's not a rule follower. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is following the rules and customs of the day. The rules and customs of the day say, show hospitality, especially to a man, especially to a rabbi. How many of you know two sisters, one of whom is a rule follower and one of whom is not? I'm married to the rule follower. And if you met my wife's sister, you would go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so both of them, right? One rule follower and one night. One Mary and one Martha. This is not abnormal. Martha's the rule follower, but a little bit of entitlement there. But listen to the tenderness of Jesus. He loves her very much. Now, Mary was different. Mary was different. Let's get to know Mary a little bit. Again, we'll read a little bit of a longer portion of Scripture. Luke, again, one of my favorite, probably my favorite gospel, records it this way. Says that, um, next slide, please says that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city. Do we know what this is? This is a euphemism for something. Everybody understand what's happening here? Okay. Uh, Matthew and Mark call her a woman of the night. Uh, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining, that's Jesus, at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask full of ointment. Very, very expensive, very, very aromatic, probably nard. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. See, in first century Palestine area, if you came into somebody's house, they would have a slave uh, take off your shoes or the lowest servant in the house, take off your shoes and take a basin and wash your feet and wipe them with a towel because you've been walking around in dirt and animal feces and sweat and all kinds of stuff. That was the lowest of the low. But listen, this woman is not doing this with a towel and a basin. She's washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. That's pretty amazing, right? Luke goes on, he says, Now when the Pharisees saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who it is that's touching him. For she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, Say it, teacher. Jesus tells him a parable. He says, Simon, two men... Uh, or a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Not a trick question. Simon gets the answer right. He answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. He says, now when I came into your house, Simon... Uh, he said, do you see the, he said, then turning towards a woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, uh, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him, they always get mad when Jesus forgives sins. The Pharisees say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Think about how Mary was treated by men up to this point in her life. What do you think? Not looked in the eye very often, probably. Not loved genuinely and tenderly. Perhaps not loved at all abused, used for her body. She walks into this place, she begins to pour 
alabaster ointment on the feet of Jesus, pour her tears on the feet of Jesus, and instead of using her, abusing her, instead of even just dismissing her and not making a scene, Jesus pours genuine love onto her, looks her in the eye, forgives her. In the face of criticism from these religious leaders, Jesus doesn't care. You think that this woman, Mary, loved Jesus a lot, just wanted to be with him, sit at his feet, no shame around Jesus. I'm protected around Jesus. I'm safe around Jesus. I don't have to worry around Jesus. Men in the room, we don't get this. Women in the room, you ever reach in your purse, make sure there's mace in there when you're walking out to your car by yourself late at night in a parking lot? See, men don't get this. Women do. Same way 2,000 years ago, but around Jesus. See, Mary was safe. She loved him. Let's talk about Lazarus. Now, this one is fascinating. This one is really fascinating. Because when the scriptures talk about the home that Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived in, they don't say it was Lazarus' home. They say it was Martha's home. Interesting, right? Because 2,000 years ago, the man was most definitely the head of the household. The man was most definitely the owner of the household. But the scriptures indicate that Martha was the head of the household. Martha was the owner of the home. In fact, Lazarus doesn't even speak in the scriptures. In John chapter 11, he doesn't speak. As far as we know, Martha and Mary were never married. They never got married. They stayed in the home and cared for their brother Lazarus. In fact, they were the ones who sent for somebody rather than Lazarus sending for someone to say, Jesus, come, I'm sick. It's led a number of Bible scholars to conclude that when the author of Scripture, John in this case, says that Lazarus was ill, he's not talking about the flu or the plague or cancer, something like that. He's talking about a severe disability, a long-term mental or physical disability. The fact that Lazarus doesn't speak, perhaps he was even mute. This is somebody that would have been ostracized, kicked out, forgotten about. But Martha and Mary cared for him, and Jesus loved him. Now let's read those first four verses again, now that we know our characters. John says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, disabled. The village of Mary and her sister Martha it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. It's a little different now, isn't it, that we know who's who. One more individual in this story that we need to know, and that's the Son of God himself, Jesus. I want you to know how Jesus felt about this disabled man, this former prostitute, and this busybody that can't sit down. John tells us that the sisters sent to him and said, he whom you love is ill. They knew full well how Jesus felt about them. John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is not phileo, this is agape, the unconditional love of God that Jesus extended to these three. Later on in the passage, Jesus would look at his disciples and he would say, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Jesus hasn't even called his disciples friends yet, but he calls Lazarus 
a friend. And then when he finally raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jews would look and say, see how Jesus loved him, Lazarus. See, these people, again, that were forgotten about by society and culture, those folks that you wouldn't invite into your home, those folks that you wouldn't want to be seen with at a Leafs game or at a movie, a woman of the night, a disabled man, people that were kind of scrounging by and trying to figure things out for themselves, the ostracized, those on the fringes of culture, these were the kind of people that tugged at the heart of Christ. These were the kind of people that would cause him to leave what he was doing in order to come to their aid and help. And so here's how that relates to the glory of God. Now watch this. Christ's compassion, specifically for the ostracized and marginalized and poor and weak, his compassion highlights the weight of the glory of God. I made a specific decision theologically today not to say that Christ's compassion adds to the weight of the glory of God. Uh, the, the, the glory of God already weighs plenty. But when Christ shows compassion, not just for those who can show compassion back or who can give something to him, but compassion for those who can't help themselves. You may have heard it said, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> God helps those who can't help themselves. This is the heart of God. This is Jesus. It's so funny in culture these days, we see God as kind of somewhere out there above and beyond, and he's holy and he's looking down on us, waiting to smite us when we have an extra beer, you know, waiting to smite us when we do something wrong, right? Waiting to smite us when we double park, when we gossip a little bit. He wants to zap us, tase us. This is not the God of the scripture. Why? Because all of that glory, all of that weight was poured out in Christ and he dwelt among us. And we see this part of his character, his compassion, his tenderness, especially for those who are forgotten about. I'm going to just stop here and say that there are some of you that maybe feel a little forgotten about today. Maybe you feel a little weak. Maybe your family's forgot about you, your work's forgot about you. Maybe that boy or girl that you really liked has forgot about you. Maybe your kids are off the rail and you feel like they've forgotten about you. You know who hasn't? Jesus. And that might seem like a spiritual platitude or something I just say. But understand, I say it with a full heart and full knowledge for myself and also with the truth of the scripture behind it. Jesus has not forgotten about you. He has compassion for you. And in that moment, the curtains on the glory of God get pulled out, pulled back just a little bit so we can see how massive his glory really is. Christ's compassion reveals the weight of the glory of God. Well, I want to end with this. John tells us that Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So if you're paying any attention at all, this is something that we don't really have a category for, isn't it? That this illness does not lead to death. It does, by the way. Lazarus dies. I mean, like not, not like dead for a few hours dead, like dead for four days dead. 
Because remember, they sent a runner to Jesus. That took a day. And then Jesus tarried two days. He waited two days in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And then he took the day journey back. So by the time he gets to the tomb, it's hilarious. This is funny. I, you know, I, you, you guys know this. I tell you stuff that I think is funny in the Bible. Okay, this is funny. Okay, stick with me. It doesn't even have anything to do with my sermon. It's not even in my notes as if I'm using any anyway. But that's beside the point. Okay, so, so when, he, when Jesus finally shows up, Martha goes, let's go out to the tomb, right? So they go out to the tomb. And Jesus says, all right, roll the stone away. And Martha's initial reaction is been dead four days it's gonna smell he's decomposing if you look this is the funny part that's not funny this is the funny part if you look at the king james version the king james version literally says he stinketh <laughs> that i think is funny does that take the edge off a little bit he stinketh oh stinketh oh. i don't know what that was i feel like i'm in like an old 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 church you know he stinketh where was I? All right, so the point is, here's the point. Jesus says, this illness is for the glory of God, so that, right there, so that we may see a little more of the weight of the glory of God, so that we may understand how massive that it is. And not only the sickness that Lazarus is enduring, but his subsequent death, even Lazarus' death reveals the weight of the glory of God. Lazarus' death highlights the weight of the glory of God. Why? Because the transformation from death to life is so radical, you know what I mean? Transformation from being blind to sight, that's radical. Transformation from being lame to walk, that's radical. Transformation from a withered hand to being able to use it, those are radical things. But this guy is dead, not just dead, like decomposing and stinking, and his sister saying, please don't roll the stone back because it's a little bit of a party foul. Pun intended. <laughs> he stinketh. And yet Jesus comes along and says, Lazarus, come forth. And this man who still has his grave clothes on walks out of the tomb. You know, our spiritual transformation mirrors Lazarus' transition from death to life. The Bible says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has given us new life in Christ. So in the same way that Lazarus' death reveals the glory of God because eventually he is brought back to life and we go, wow, how massive must God be? How much must his glory weigh? And if it gets on the other end of that seesaw, I'm in good shape now because it weighs plenty to relieve the burden and the weight that I feel. So it's not only Lazarus. But because our spiritual transformation mirrors that, radical spiritual transformation highlights the weight of God's glory. Same way. When we see somebody change radically, we almost always say, who did that or how did you do that? There's probably people in your life that are Christians, that you, that you never expected to be a Christian, the kind of person that converts from like just absolute craziness. Some of you are that person, you know? And you're going, man, that radical spiritual transformation, it, it tells me how good God is and how great God is. This happens in all kinds of different areas of life. Uh, let me introduce you to a friend of mine. He's up here on the screen. Uh, this guy's name is Chris Powell. I don't know, you may notice, uh, 
Uh, you may have seen Chris Powell before. I say he's a friend. He's an acquaintance, and, and uh, Chris and I have had the opportunity to chat on a number of different occasions. And it's his wife, Heidi, and their kids, and he's very good-looking. And Chris has a show on TV. I think it's on ABC or something. It's called Extreme Makeover, Weight Loss Edition. And what they do is, is they find people who are struggling very, very hard with weight, who are very overweight, even morbidly obese, and they bring them to Chris, and they undergo a transformation in their diet and their exercise program, and they lose a significant significant amount of weight over a very short period of time. People losing hundreds of pounds in a very short period of time. But they didn't give Chris that TV show just because he's cute, although he is, and they didn't give Chris that TV show just because he's personality plus, although he is. They gave Chris that TV show because he was on a morning show in Arizona at like four o'clock in the morning that absolutely no one watched and he didn't get paid for it or whatever. And this individual named David wrote Chris a letter and he said, look, I weigh 650 pounds and I need your help. I need your help, and I don't know what to do. And Chris still does this today on his TV show. You know, he didn't just write him a diet plan and write him an exercise plan and say, hey, let me know how you're doing in a month. Chris actually moved in with David. This is the very first time that they met. This is Chris and David. Chris moved into his house. We wake up together. We go to bed together. We eat together. Everything we do together. And over the course of a year... This individual transitioned from this size to that size. Can you imagine that? Look how big his shirt was before. Look, next, next slide. Pay no attention to Matt Lauer over here. We don't like to talk about Matt Lauer anymore. That's how big his shirt was. This is Chris helping him. And when Chris did this and when he uh, helped this, this young man undergo this transition, and losing uh, this weight and getting into, a, getting into a healthy weight, Chris got attention. Chris got fame. Chris got a TV show. Chris got glory. That's what that is. People started to take his opinion to matter for something. His opinion held what? Weight. This is what it means when we say radical spiritual transformation highlights the weight of God's glory. When we change, when God does new things, when someone who was once angry becomes joyful, when someone who was once greedy, like Matthew the tax collector, becomes generous, when someone who was once reserved and shy to a fault becomes vocal about their faith, we see radical spiritual transformation happening, and we go, wow, God's glory must be immense. This is what Matthew's talking about when he says, uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give what? Glory to your Father who's in heaven. Highlight the weight of the glory of God. So we started with this image, and I want to go back to it one more time. It's the mountain on a seesaw. <laughs> For some of us, we feel like this is not just the mountain at seven feet, over 400 pounds. We feel like it's a literal mountain, don't we? It's the mountain of mental illness that we just can't seem to shake. The weight of debt or stress or anxiety, the weight of our past, the weight of a secret sin that you've never told anyone. And we think to ourselves, there is no counterweight that could fall into that seat and lift this burden off of me. Nothing. Nothing. So I've got one question for you as we conclude. What's your mountain on a seesaw? 
What's your mountain on a seesaw? What is it for you? I, I named some examples. I don't know what it is. I don't know all of you. I know some of you. But what is it? What's that weight that you're carrying? Is it the weight of literal death like Martha and Mary faced in their brother? Maybe you've got someone close to you that's moving towards death. Maybe you've already lost them in death. And that weight has become too much. What is it for you? My encouragement this morning is that the weight of the glory of God far surpasses any burden that you might be carrying. And as the old hymn once said, that if we would turn our eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his what? Glory and grace. When we see the immensity of God and the glory of God, when Jesus raises someone from the dead so that we see, God, you're so big, when we behold that, when we invite that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and sat down on the other side of that seesaw so that it doesn't just even out to neutral, but it shoots that burden up into nowhere. This is what Paul meant when he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an, say these words with me, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's just grab that principle today, no matter what burden you're facing. The weight of the glory of God has come down in Christ so that we might be lifted up. Let's pray together as we close. God, thank you for these moments together that we have as a body, as a family, to worship you, to hear from you. God, I pray today that you would give us clarity and a vision and a sense of your great glory and great magnitude as we study your scripture, as we see your glory in creation like Romans 1 says, as we see your glory, your magnitude, your splendor even in the community that we experience and as we sing about your glory. God, as we behold your glory, as we allow your glory to sit squarely in our hearts, pray, oh God, that those burdens would feel like light, momentary afflictions, even the burden of death. If you know that hymn, will you sing it with me? Let's stand and sing. Turn. Turn.